Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special espresso martini, or maybe it's an espresso vodka martini today. <laughs> um, <laughs> over the weekend, we were as shocked as everyone else at the turn of events in Russia, and we hope today to sort of shed some light on what is known so far on this special podcast. Before we kick in, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's good to see you again so soon. Wonder yes, why that happened. I know. <laughs> Honestly, it's been quite an interesting weekend. Yeah. I, I have not had much sleep as I'd like to have done because uh, all this kicked off on sort of Friday night, fine yeah. enough, as I was posting up uh, the espresso martini that came out uh, and suddenly saw there might be a coup happening in Russia. I thought, <laughs> oh, shit. So, so uh, yeah. <laughs> So um, what I'll do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. So today we're just gonna obviously talk about what's known. We there's still a lot of unknowns at the moment, or uh, known unknowns. Maybe if we quote, uh, who was that again? That was, that was that Donald was, Rumsfeld. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld. There we go. No knowns. No unknowns. May he, may he, may he rest in peace. Yes. <laughs> So, um, so today, what we're going to do? I'm going to I'm going to start off with who Prigozhin is. We'll talk a little bit about what the Wagner Group is because there are over conversations I've had with people over the weekend. There's some people out there who still don't know who they are, mm-hmm. um, and then we will kind of go into the events themselves, um, pretty much in the format that we usually do an espresso martini. So, um, what I'll do, I'm going to start with who who you gave me Prigozhin is. And we're going to kind of go into his background. So uh, taking just from Wikipedia, because that was the easiest resource, um, Prigozhin is a Russian oligarch and he is a mercenary chief and he is a former close confidant of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. And we will emphasize the former, uh, or so we believe anyway. Um, for and now. Prigozhin is sometimes, yeah, for now, um, P- Prigozhin is sometimes called Putin's chef because he um, owned a number of restaurants and catering companies that provided services for the Kremlin. Notably, as his time as chef he served then prince charles in 2003 who's now king charles um and president bush in 2006 so he has uh, been sort of uh, connected to western circles through his catering um he was also once a convict during in the soviet union and Prigozhin now controls or did control a network of uh, influential companies including obviously the russian state-backed mercenary group the wagner group and three companies accused of interference in the 2016 and 20 18 US elections. You could probably add Scottish independence and Brexit to that. Yeah. Um, and according to a 2022 investigation by Bellingcat, The Insider, and De Spiegel, Prigozhin's activities are tightly integrated with the Russian Defense Ministry and its intelligence arm, the GRU. So that that's a bit about Prigozhin. Matt, I don't know if you've got any quick thoughts on Prigozhin himself that you want to share. Or... No, I think that was a pretty uh, good overview of of him. Um, you know, kind of a general Thank you, Wikipedia. Yeah, general <laughs> psychopath. I mean, this is a guy yeah. who. Uh, um, yeah, just sends his troops across the line in Ukraine as like cannon fodder, uh, mm. uh, executes deserters with mm. sledgehammers mm. to the head, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Let's look at who the Wagner Group are, uh, because I think it's a good idea just to explain a bit about them. So I've actually found a piece called Band of Brothers, the Wagner Group in the Russian State. And it's actually back from September 2020. I've just updated some key points at the bottom. So I'll just read out the key points of this article from the Center of Strategic Studies. But I think it's a good, it gives a good overview who Wagner are. So the Wagner Group, they first appeared in Ukraine in 2014, where it participated in the annexation of Crimea. So obviously you can already see how they're totally integrated into what's going on at the moment. The Russian private military group known as the Wagner Group is closely intertwined with the Russian military and the intelligence community, making it a proxy organization of the Russian state rather than a conventional business. It operates in support of Russian interests. It receives equipment from the Russian Ministry of Defense and has used Ministry of Defense installations for training. The group shares a base with the GRU which is Russian military intelligence, and it relies on Russian military infrastructure, including transport and healthcare services. One of the founders, Dmitry Utkin, I hope I got his surname right there, um, he has ties to the GIU, the Russian military intelligence, and obviously we've mentioned Yegevny Prigozhin. He, recent, up until recently, had very close ties with then-President Vladimir Putin. 
So while the Wagner group itself is not ideologically driven, elements of it have been linked to neo-Nazism and far-right politics. As I think you and I have mentioned, there are members who have like tattoos. The SS death head, like the runes, yeah. Uh, sorry, they have tattoos with SS symbols and swash stickers and what have you on them. Um, and I've never quite understood how a country like Russia that has a big history of during World War II of fighting the Nazis that somehow Nazi symbols have sort of become mainstreamed since the fall of the Soviet Union. I never quite understood that. And that the Russians in particular in World War II faced like the mm. worst of Nazi barbarity. Yeah, it makes no sense at all yeah. why they would celebrate. Uh, but uh, as we've said on other podcasts, you know, Russia has in the last few years been trying to position itself as the saviour of the white Christian world, and it has a lot of support from the far right, and it also has been very influential uh, and directly supported far-right groups across Europe, potentially with the aim to destabilise European politics. Just to further add then, Russia has a history of using proxy forces abroad and sees private military contractors as political military tools for extending its influence with plausible deniability. PMCs allow Russia to hide personnel losses and deny involvement in conflicts as their losses are not officially counted as part of the regular military. While private military companies, PMCs, are illegal in Russia, there are legal loopholes, surprise there, that allow their operation. And there are also uh, state-run organizations and enterprises that also have private armed forces and security foundations, and they register those companies abroad. That sort of seems to be the loophole there. The Wagner operatives use passports issued by a special desk links to Russia's Ministry of Defense. The Russian state has shown presidential intervention and support for the Wagner group in situations like the arrests of operatives in Belarus. And then based on all that evidence, the Wagner group should be considered a proxy organization closely connected to the Russian state rather than just a private military company. Now, uh, just adding to all that, so during obviously the Ukraine war, tensions have grown between Wagner and the Russian government. Wagner have complained about equipment and weapons supplies. Prigozhin has been openly critical of Russian military leadership over the last few months, and recent tensions have sort of grown when Russian military command called for the company to be incorporated directly under their command. Um, signs of tension between Prigozhin and the Russian government spilled into the open during the Battle of Bak moot which saw heavy losses for Wagner. Prigozhin recently made a statement just before the events of last weekend that some have interpreted as a thinly veiled attack on Putin himself and he declared that while his men were dying due to the Ministry of Defense's failures to supply ammunition a happy granddad is thinking he's doing well and then he referred to that granddad with an obscenity. So um, just uh, before we go back to you, Matt, just one last thing with Wagner. So I just wanted to quickly say where they have been reported to operate. So obviously Ukraine, um, they were involved and took a lead role in Russia's war against the country. And they've been there since 2014. And they've been supporting pro-Russian separatist forces against the Ukraine government. Syria, the Wagner group gained significant attention for its involvement in the Syrian civil war. His operatives have been deployed to support the Syrian government forces and have been engaged in combat against rebel groups, including the Islamic State. In Sudan, there have been reports of the Wagner Group personnel operating in Sudan, private security and military support for the Sudanese government. In Libya, they're well-traveled, these people. Yeah. Wagner Group mercenaries have been involved in the civil war there, and they've been supporting forces of General Khalifa Haftra, who is aligned with the Libyan National Army. Then, in the Central African Republic, CAR, the Wagner Group operatives have been deployed to CAR, providing security and military assistance to the government in its fight against rebel groups. Also, as we mentioned earlier, Prigozhin and the Wagner Group have also been um, linked to online troll farms and hackers who played a role in interfering in the US presidential elections of 2016 and 18. And I added also Brexit and Scottish independence is worth considering. They also are involved in influence campaigns across Africa and the Middle East. Most of those campaigns have been sort of geared, recently geared towards trying to build support for Russia's actions against Ukraine. And obviously, if we've, I think we've mentioned in the Middle East and Africa, some some countries have been a bit murky on how they uh, feel about the war in Ukraine, and some have even openly supported Russia. So after all that, Matt, I'm going to hand it over to you for any thoughts and observations on the Wagner Group. So Wagner, over the course of the past few years, really starting with their involvement um intervening in the Syrian civil war on behalf of Bashar mm -hmm. al-Assad, and especially through the first 
you know, year or so of this civil war, um, Wagner's really, uh, and Prigozhin himself has kind of begun to operate as a, uh, parallel armed wing of like this sort of Putinist, uh, ideology. Like I think, Mm -hmm. um, previously we've drawn comparisons, you know, to like, uh, the SS, um, in a way, like it's very much represents that kind of ultra nationalist, um, highly militaristic, uh, strain of, of I guess Russian political discourse that's really kind of taken off, um, since the war in uh, Ukraine began. And just to show you a bit of how closely coordinated, uh, Wagner is with with the Russian state. So there's a um, a base near Krasnodar, which is in southern Russia. Um, there's a barracks there where a Spetsnaz unit, so a Russian special forces unit that subordinated to the GRU, Russian military intelligence. Um, so basically like if you, if you went through the gates of this GRU barracks, if you turn to the left, that's where the Spetsnaz brigade is garrisoned. If you go to the right, to the right side of the space, that's where Wagner had their main base inside Russia. Wow. So like kind of yeah. co-located in the same area. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah historically I've been very close yeah yeah so having the navy seals and blackwater training together isn't it or something yeah kind of i mean so i guess kind of a, a a comparison would be um i mean they're not quite as close but so seal team six they're headquartered at Damneck annex right on the beach in virginia beach and uh blackwater now i think it's called academy um, their main base or their like training facility is in uh moyock north carolina which is only a couple miles mm south from 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 virginia mm. beach so there there are a lot of comparisons um yeah there's sort of another comparison i can get into when we get more into like what the coup itself was yeah. yeah yeah of course i mean one thing i would add obviously it's nothing great revelation here but it kind of feels like that since 2014 the wagner have almost become the elite of russian forces pretty much i mean they've they've really i think performed the best i use best yeah. you know relatively you know uh um Compared to the regular Russian army units, uh, especially in, in Syria as well. I mean, it's also the not we've the U.S. military has come in direct contact with them before. So mm-hmm. um, this was during during the Trump administration, early on in the Trump administration, fairly early uh, when James Mattis was still secretary of defense. Um, we got into a bit of a scrap with Wagner mercenaries Um I believe James Mattis called Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, who will come up a bit more in this whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of had this discussion and Sergei Shoigu was like, well, they're not actually official Russian forces. So, you know, what happens to them happens. And uh, we bombed Wagner's position in Syria, killed hundreds of them. Um, and, you know, they kind of never interfered with our operations in Syria again yeah definitely and i think it's interesting this rift that we'll talk about about between Putin and Prigozhin now challenges and creates an issue for russian projection of power abroad doesn't it uh-huh. yeah it definitely does i mean so they're like you've pointed out you know where they've operated a lot in central africa really exerting a lot of a, a lot of influence in 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 central mm. africa um mm. help turn the tide in, in syria in bashar al-assad's favor um, they've had work in Venezuela before on behalf of Nicolas Maduro, um, yeah. kind of it, it's, it's this sort of PMC, this private military structure that Wagner operates under has enabled the Russians to exert a lot of influence in, in the third world, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. but with the degree mm-hmm. of deniability, um, which has mm-hmm. been really useful just as a, as a tool yeah. of, of Russian power. Um, and right now it's kind of unclear what will happen to Wagner's operations uh, mm. outside of Russia and, and 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 Ukraine we don't really know yet no indeed well let's let's go into the main event right and then uh, and then we can kind of uh, we can open up the conversation a bit so um so let's look at the events over the weekend then so our next piece I've picked out is by Professor Phillips O'Brien who is a professor of strategic studies at the University of St Andrews in Scotland and Professor O'Brien writes a great weekly blog on updates relating to the Ukraine war on his Substack so we'll link to that obviously in the show notes so my notes here from Substack weekend update number 34 so I'll just read out the key points then Matt I'll come to you so 
On the 24th of June, uh, Yegevny Prigozhin issued a statement that claimed the Russian military had launched an attack on his Wagner military base uh, in Ukraine. And in response to the rocket strike, Prigozhin said he would move to punish those responsible. Russian authorities then launched a criminal investigation against Prigozhin, calling for his arrest. Prigozhin and his men hit the road in an armed convoy from Ukraine to Moscow. Prigozhin said that his uh, said his men in the convoy would punish those military leaders who ordered the strike and said his troops would fire on any troops trying to stop them. Prigozhin's convoy quickly gained control over strategic cities like Rostov and Voronezh, and their convoy headed towards Moscow. As the convoy approached the capital, a sudden turn of events occurred. Prigozhin and Putin reached a deal mediated by Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus, and leading to the Wagner column to turn back and Prigozhin entering a form of exile. The reasons behind Prigozhin's decision to stop are unclear, but it appears he may have felt threatened by the potential consequences of his actions. Prigozhin insisted that his actions were not a military coup, but a march for justice. Um, so I guess he was trying to compare himself maybe to French lorry drivers or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Prigozhin, uh, in an earlier statement, actually even accused Moscow of lying to the public about Russia's war on Ukraine. And he said that, and it's interesting wording, but he said that the Minister of Defense is trying to deceive the public and the president and spin the story that there were insane levels of aggression from the Ukrainian side and that they were going to attack us together with the whole NATO bloc. So with that statement, he kind of lets Putin off the hook there. Um, and he further added that when Zelensky became president, he was ready for agreements. All that needed to be done was for the Russian government to get off Mount Olympus and negotiate with him. Mm. Um, so that's an interesting statement there. Um, the long-term implications of this of this deal and um, between Prigozhin and the Russian government and the fate of uh, Wagner itself, are now uh, kind of in the wind. We don't really know what's going to happen there. We also don't know what's going to happen to the defense minister, uh, Sergei Shigu, and uh, chief of staff, Valery Gerasimov, who've been in charge of Russian military forces in Ukraine to date. Um, Professor O'Brien interestingly sees this event as a mutiny rather than a deliberate coup. Um, and he said that the mutiny looked uh, looked like it was the re result of remarkable long-term logistical planning, which I think's almost been confirmed by the um, by U.S. intelligence yeah. from some reporting I've seen that apparently there's been chatter about something like this for some time. And what this mutiny has done is expose the weakness of the Putinist state, as the government was very slow to react and has insufficient military forces to counter the uprising. Ultimately, Putin um, has sort of surprisingly spared Prigozhin despite this mutiny causing significant humiliation for Putin and casting doubt on his unchallenged power. And we will see what the consequences of this are as they play out in the weeks and months ahead. So, uh, Matt, back over to you. Any any thoughts on any of this and uh, what we witnessed over the weekend? Well, I think if you want sort of like... If if you want to compare it to like, okay, if this happened in the United States, what would it have looked mm -hmm. like? Because I think that maybe helps people get a better idea of what happened if they put it in the context yeah. of, you know, their own country and their own system. So it's essentially equivalent to if like Eric Prince, who was the founder of Blackwater, right? If he uh, was in a months long dispute with... um Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, and Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, right, over the direction of a U.S. war somewhere. And finally, the the, the dispute between them got so bad that uh, Eric Prince had like 20,000 men and seized control of Tampa, Florida, which is where U.S. Special Operations Command and U.S. Central Command is headquartered. I mean, that's the sort of relationship that Rostov has with the Russian military, right? That's yeah, the US yeah. military does with Tampa, right? So let's say Eric Prince took control of Tampa and then was marching up I-95 along the East Coast with 20,000 men um, to reach Washington and I, I don't know, do something mm -hmm. to 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 the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs when, when he got there. Um, and then got to about, let's say, Richmond, Virginia, right, a couple hundred miles south of D.C., and then Justin Trudeau um, negotiated a deal with him that he was going to stop and turn around, and in exchange, he was going to go into exile in Canada. 
that's basically what happened. Very good way to put it. Which I think shows you kind of how when you put it in that terms, mm -hmm. describe it that way, shows how kind of just crazy the whole thing was. Um, I mean, yeah, while it was happening on on Saturday and stuff, you know, the, the coup word was being thrown around and there were like some people on Twitter who was like, well, unless it comes from the coup d'etat region of France, it's not really a coup. It's just like sparkling oh, armed God. up people. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, oh my God. And I think it's, it's, we've kind of firmly, it get for a long time, we didn't really know what Prigozhin's intentions were. And I think to this, even now we don't fully know. I don't think Prigozhin fully knew what his intentions were when he, when he started this, um, but it could have been a coup. It reminds me a bit like Boris Johnson and Brexit. I don't think he really thought it was going to happen. A bit, you know. There's another. Did. There's another uh, <laughs> note there that I can compare Boris mm. to in a mm. in a second. <laughs> but um, it could have easily become a coup. And I think we've sort of landed mm. now on that. It was it was a mutiny, right? So he was marching up to 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 Moscow to punish the leadership of the Ministry of Defense. Um, what, and I, I think, I think he became, Prigozhin quickly became sort of afraid by his own success that mm. he was able to, you know, drive hundreds of kilometers through the middle of Russia virtually unopposed he met a little resistance um i think wagner forces on the way up shot down six russian army helicopters uh yeah. a fixed wing airborne command post aircraft that had a crew of like six or something so there were casualties yeah, yeah, taken yeah. over the course of this mm, um mm. and i guess saw that the he didn't I, he didn't intend to challenge putin but it got to the point where it, it could have very quickly transpired that the government collapsed, which I think is is something that's so, you know, scary about this. So that could have potentially been a lot worse than it was. Like, you know, Putin, uh, we saw in in like sort of like flight radar apps, people were noticing that two aircraft that are part of the Russia's special transport squadron that Putin usually uses in the morning on Saturday departed Moscow and was flying towards St. Petersburg, right? So like abandoned the capital. And there's some other reports that Putin, while this happened, landed at uh, an estate he has in Valdai, which is like a national park about halfway between Russia and St. Petersburg. He spent much of COVID there, I think. Um, so sort of fled Moscow. So, I mean, mm. I, I was sort of, this was my thought as it was happening that, you know, if he reached, if Prigozhin reached Moscow and, you know, the Russian National Guard troops and stuff there in the city were like digging trenches and putting in roadblocks and and bulldozing up sections of the highway to sort of stop him. If he had reached Moscow, and then what? You know, what would you have done then? And I think if if Wagner troops marched into the Kremlin unopposed and and Putin had fled to St. Petersburg or to some other, you know, country estate, I think there would have been real questions as to who's in charge of the country, you know? Yeah. And there were quite a few really provocative sort of moves that Wagner took. So on their tanks and their vehicles, Wagner men painted red Zs on these mm. vehicles. So the the letter Z stands for the Russian word uh, Zapad, um, has since the beginning of the war in Ukraine has been kind of like their symbol for that war, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. So all Russian military vehicles kind of have this white Z painted on it. But Wagner troops during this mutiny painted a red Z, which sort of uh, evokes the – so during the Russian Civil War in, in, in 1970, the Bolshevik uh, rebels at that point were the Red Army facing yes. off with the sort of uh, anti, I guess, or pro-Czarist forces, the White Army. So very kind of in in the annals of Russian history, that kind of memory, very provocative statements that would lead one to suspect that, you know, are they coming for the whole thing? And, you know, Putin even raised the specter of civil war in 1970 mm -hmm. and then 1917 mm -hmm. in his um, statement, you know, 
calling Prigozhin a traitor. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I was shocked by the sudden turn of events, and you know, your imagination kind of runs wild a little bit because I, I, if you look at the, so what was interesting to me, and we'll probably come into this bit more of the Ann Applebaum bit in a minute, but um, sort of seeing how the locals reacted to Wagner forces entering town, and also the military. Yeah, I, yeah, they were basically people were siding with them. I, I think they, I, I mean, I'm speculating here, but I think they could have actually got into Moscow with a little bit of battle, but I think most people may well have folded and sided with them. And I think that was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so this uh, Wagner column departed the front in Ukraine, drove back mm. into Russia to Rostov, which is close to the border, but not not, not mm. that close. It's still a bit of a distance. Occupied mm. Rostov, the where the headquarters mm. of the Southern Military District is, um, without firing a shot. Which means yeah. that you know the other forces in Rostov or that they encountered along the way either stood aside and and didn't oppose them or were actively supporting them. Mm. Um, mm. I think it's possible that they, I think they could have taken the Kremlin if they wanted to, you know, mm. which really kind of shows you how fragile this regime actually is and you know to to your point about the reaction of russian citizens in in vostov i mean they were kind of you know walking around taking pictures up on wagner tanks chatting with the soldiers um at the end of the day on saturday after this was resolved and and wagner mm, troops mm. left rostov uh yeah, the, the yeah. people were, were out, even chanting wagner, wagner, yeah wagner, yeah they, they were out in the streets yeah. cheering them and i mean so Prigozhin kind of said the quiet part out loud in this mutiny, which is that, you know, uh, Shoigu and and Gerasimov uh, are kind of just hopelessly corrupt and and feckless, mm. and their actions have gotten 100,000 Russians killed for nothing, um, came out and said, you know, this war wasn't because the need to denazify Ukraine or because of NATO expansion. It was because, mm. you know, uh, the... Russian leadership wanted to basically just plunder Ukraine, you know, which is something that like we mm. all know. But if mm. you're swept up in 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 Russia's, you know, state run propaganda vacuum, that might be news to you or it might be something that yeah. you suspected, but is is literally yeah. illegal to say out loud. And and he came out here and said the quiet part out loud, you know, yeah. but but yeah. Prigozhin's point was that these kind of corrupt, feckless generals are are preventing us from murdering Ukrainians more efficiently, right? Yes. So let's not forget that. Right. Yeah. So when all these Russian citizens are out in the street cheering him on, are they cheering the fact that he called the war bullshit and that it got a hundred thousand Russians killed? Or are they cheering because he wants to murder Ukrainians more efficiently? And that's a question that I really don't have an answer to. I mean, Russian opinion is a complete yeah. black box. I don't I, I don't know. No, no. I mean, thinking strategically, if he were wise, because it looked like the, with all these statements and things, it looked like he was certainly uh, either buying himself or Putin a kind of get out of jail card here. Yeah. Um, with blaming it on the military and blaming it on the military leadership where Putin could say, I've been deceived by my military leaders and this is a disaster. Or... If Prigozhin toppled Putin, he could turn around and say, you know, this war's pointless, wasting resources, cost lots of lives, and it's not my fault. I, I, I've been on the front line fighting it myself, and it's all down to Putin, former leadership, or the military leadership. That, I think, would have been um, a big possibility for him to do that if he had become leader. And I, I think Prigozhin... <laughs> in a weird way, um, has bungled it for himself because this deal now weakens him because his men are already getting arrested. They're being rounded up. Their families are probably being investigated. Houses have been raided. Um, the problem is now Prigozhin is sort of, in a sense, um, saved his own skin at the cost of his own men. And I'm sure right. unless... You know, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be in Wagner are going to be a bit pissed off about that. Um, and you could see a lot of the kind of um, uh, what's the word I want now? The sort of just general Wagner members become the kind of scapegoat for some of all of this whilst he gets away with it. That's a good point. I think I think from everything that we've seen, I think it's safe to assume that Prigozhin 
launch this mutiny, which it had been seemingly planned for for a while. I mean, he had been stockpiling ammunition yeah. for a while. He certainly had a plan to go. And, you know, like on, mm. on Friday, there was supposedly Wagner released this video on Telegram that a Wagner camp inside Ukraine was supposedly bombed by yeah. the Russian army. And that was kind of the trigger for him to, to launch this thing. There is no real indication if the Russian military actually did that or if that was all just sort of like a, a, a setup mm, that they mm, did to give mm, them like an excuse mm, to mm, launch the mutiny, mm. we don't know. But I think it's clear he didn't want to challenge Putin. He did not intend to try and overthrow him. I think mm. he – I think over the course of this, I think it probably happened a bit quicker and easier than Prigozhin suspected. Mm. And he got yeah. to the point where he's a couple hundred miles south of Moscow, he's at the point now where, <laughs> yeah. okay, if there's going to be serious bloodshed, it's going to happen soon. And mm. you know, oh yeah, what if, what if, what if his troops went into Moscow and you know the National Guard, the FSB, those kind of security forces just folded? What if other, you know, high-ranking generals, military officers, kind of came out and were like, okay, yeah, we'll back you. You know, mm. he could have mm. quickly found mm. himself in a place where he was actively overthrowing Putin's regime, you know, and it's sort of like this saying like, okay, if if you break it, you bought it. And I don't think Prigozhin really wanted that, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's this sort of like, there's a problem usually you see with villains in, in thriller novels, or I guess, you know, films too, where like they have this, you know, really dastardly, well thought out plan of how they're going to achieve mm. some sort of aims or whatever, but they didn't, they never consider the problem of, okay, and then what, you know, mm. like you execute mm. your plan, you win. And then what happens, yeah. you know? And sometimes, yeah. sometimes that's Brexit. just because, right. That's <laughs> Boris. That's what I was sort of alluding yeah. to. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's just because the author themselves didn't think that far ahead and it's just sort of like a plot hole. Sometimes it's, you know, a, a downside of the villain's plan, you know, that was that was yeah. sort of factored yeah. in um, intentionally. But it's the problem of, okay, I do this thing and then what? And I think that's absolutely what happened with Prigozhin here. He got on the cusp of a really big victory that he did not necessarily intend to have and, and – mm. um, I think got the best deal that he could have gotten. I mean, if you consider the way Putin has responded to challenges and crises before, I mean, he's never faced this kind of direct challenge to his leadership before. Russia hasn't seen this kind of of armed upheaval inside its borders since the 93 constitutional crisis. Um, But I think if you looked how Putin has responded to to challenges before, like uh, in the second Chechen war, um, just mm. flattening Grozny, you know, like mm. just no mm. mercy at all, or the tactics that the Russians have used in in Syria, you know, in like Aleppo and 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 Idlib, just indiscriminate bombings of civilians. Uh, his security forces' response to um, uh, when a Chechen group took all those hostages at a theater in in Moscow in the early two thousands, the exact date oh, yeah. escapes me yeah. at the time. You know, those tactics mm. got. Tons of hostages killed, but it was always just zero something, you know, okay, mm. someone's challenging me. I'm just going to mm. flip the table over and kill mm. everyone, mm. you know? And I think it's mm. really surprising that you didn't see that response from Putin here, you know, yeah, that for now yeah. anyway, he sort of allowed Prigozhin to walk away. Um, and if anything, that that shows you that shows you, I think, real fear that Putin has of Prigozhin's influence, you know, that those Russians are out on the street cheering him. Instead of Putin. Yeah, what is it? The stunning lack of loyalty to Putin became very evident very quickly. Yeah. And maybe Putin just doesn't have the muscle to be able to build up uh, an aggressive counter to this. That's true. I mean, how many of his forces are bogged down inside mm. Ukraine? You know, did he yeah. did did, yeah. did Wagner push so far into Russia because there's no one left to respond? I suspect that might be the case. I think there's probably a very small amount of people in Moscow yeah. who, depending on their feelings, may have just laid down their arms and let Wagner take over because they're supposed to obviously defend the capital. Yeah. But I think, I think, you know, as we were saying earlier, I think Wagner's sort of seen as the elite of the elite these days. Yeah. Um, and I think 
Prigozhin probably appeals more to soldiers these days than Putin because Prigozhin's a man of action, man on the front line with those experiences. And I think the ordinary Russian soldier, if you've got to compare yourself with Putin or Prigozhin, I think they're going to go with Prigozhin. I could be completely wrong here. Obviously, Putin has a very tight-knit inner circle who, who are bodyguards, a bit like the Secret Service, who I'm sure would have done their very best to protect him. But... Um, I, I think you, we might have seen Putin end up on a plane going somewhere where he could go into exile. I don't think he would have gone down in a blaze of glory. I don't think Putin's got the stones for that. I could be wrong. No. I mean, I think mm. I think fleeing Moscow when there really isn't a clear threat yet that he's challenged, I think, tells you a lot. That he immediately ran to the bunker. I mean, that's exactly why JSOC, mm. on one of the opening nights of the war... In Ukraine, uh, JSOC and the CIA offered to evacuate Zelensky to Lviv or even into Poland, you know, and he famously now, you know, said, I don't need a riot. I need I need bullets. Um, and I, I think if I really think if if Zelensky had fled Kiev mm. in those opening days yeah. of the war. I think he would have lost. I don't think he would be in charge of Ukraine right now had he done that. And that he stayed in the capital and was like, I'm going to fucking fight here. And yeah. if I die, I die. Yeah really kind of gave a signal to everyone else fighting in Ukraine mm. that, you know, okay, our mm. leader's here, he's going to do this with us. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, if you're a Russian conscript on the front lines in Ukraine, what's your morale right now? You know, like, why would you want to fight and die for these people? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Putin, just thinking about Putin's famous calendars where he's riding topless on a horse, you didn't see him riding topless on a horse towards Prigozhin, did you? No, no. And there's a, you know, <laughs> there's a world where Putin stays in the Kremlin, mm. right? And he invites Prigozhin in for an audience. Like, okay, you're pissed off. I get it. Come on in. Mm. Let's talk about it, yeah. right? And he has this meeting inside the Kremlin, live on state TV. Let's say he brings Shoigu and Gerasimov in there, too. And, I mean, Putin's done this before. Uh, just sort of publicly on TV, berate Shoigu and and Gerasimov, says, you know, all the failures we've had in Ukraine are your fault. You're dismissed. You know, he 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 allow state TV to sort of push this narrative that, you know, he was deceived by bad commanders, uh, placates Wagner for the time being, you know, gives Prigozhin nominally what he wants. Uh, I think that could have been spun as a victory for him. And he didn't do it. He he ran. I think if you look at it in a self-interested way for us, like, is this good for us? I think this is the best possible outcome for us. Prigozhin and Putin both look weak in the end of this. And we don't have a bloody civil war taking place in in Russia. Could it easily have gotten to a really bad place mm. where like, you know, OK, let's say let's say Putin goes further and he does occupy the Kremlin. And then, you know, there's high ranking officers in the strategic rocket forces, which governs Russia's 6000 nukes. Let's say some of those officers say, OK, we're going to side with Prigozhin. And some of them stay loyal to Putin. And now you have two factions in this civil war with nominal control over nuclear weapons. Yeah. That's a really bad situation, which is why I think there's, you know, some well-intentioned uh, liberal or pro-Western or pro-Ukrainian voices who have been like, you know, anyone's better than Putin. Mm. That's not true. No. That is absolutely not true. There are worse people, worse scenarios than Putin. And and this weekend showed us why. Yeah, well, the common consensus from people I've spoken to about Russian affairs is whoever replaces Putin, they're going to come from the right of Putin. And that's because yeah. he's pretty much decimated the opposition. Um, and interestingly as well, I mean, I, I was just collecting a few tweets here and there from people. And I was just, um, I don't know, once in a while you get an expert who tries to throw a positive spin on things. Um, and I'm trying to find it now, because we had this a few weeks ago with the Turkish election with the, the foreign policy magazine where it was saying something yeah. the lines of, do not underestimate the power of the youth vote and stuff. And... Pff, you know, it was business as usual in Turkey in the end of that election. And there was somebody yeah. somewhere, and I now can't find the tweet which I screen grabbed, um, who basically was just sort of um, 
being critical of that consensus that whoever's going to replace Putin will come from the right and that we shouldn't underestimate the sort of liberal Russian forces. But the problem is, I mean, the people on the right of Putin are very well armed, very well connected, whilst the, the liberals on the other side are not well armed, they're not well connected, and their key leaders are all in prison, poisoned or dead. Famously, Boris Nemtsov got shot right outside the Kremlin. That's sort of how Putin has treated the uh, would-be sort of liberals in his country. I, I'm not optimistic at all about Russians' political future currently. Um, no. And if somebody of the right does take over, it, and if they do decide to continue on the war, because logically speaking, it's a good get, uh, moment to stop the war, but they could say, no, I'm going to just throw everything I've got at it. Because Prigozhin even mentioned at one point earlier on that he would bring back, uh, he would bring in martial law in Russia. Total mobilization. Yeah, proper conscription, stuff like that. And, he, and he's not an idiot. He probably knows militarily how to, what he needs to defeat Ukraine. And he right. certainly, if Russia, there are, you know, Russia still have, um, you know, uh, some heavy weapons and stuff they could use. Obviously, they've used an awful lot of stuff, but they haven't exhausted everything. And if they pulled in all their mercenaries from abroad and brought them all to focus on Ukraine, and uh, they probably, I hate to say it, probably could win. Um, if if yeah. a Russian president who is sort of more um, sort of uh, tactically savvy wanted to try it. Um, so, you know, let's not rest too easy on all this. So. <laughs> I think... You know, there's long been this kind of fantasy among Western liberals that there would be like this Aaron Sorkin kind of scenario where the Russians rise up and overthrow Putin and he's replaced by like Alexei Navalny and and all is well and we go back to like the end of history yeah, type yeah. bullshit, right? And I, if I'm if I'm being if I'm being frank, I think Navalny's a very inspiring figure, but I think his base of support was always has always been primarily uh, Western liberals who want this romanticized version of what Russia could be. I think to that point, Prigozhin has the political capital amongst Russian citizens that we've sort of falsely imagined that Navalny has had. I mean, I think we'll be lucky if Navalny survives the year with sort of the rate he's going inside a Russian prison. Mm, mm, um, mm, mm. Yeah, to your point, yeah, I think I think any real challenge right now comes from Putin's right, which is scary. You know, like I had a friend, a friend of mine Thursday night texted me. Um, he asked me two questions that were very good questions. He said, does a weak Putin mean danger for Americans? And I guess we could substitute Americans for the whole Western alliance, right? And I said, a weak Putin, no. Well, I think a weak Putin is good for us. But a corner Putin, yes, mm. is dangerous. Mm. That's mm. bad. Mm. The second question he asked was, does America generally benefit from a stable dictatorship in Russia? And I said, we benefit from the predictability and professional experience of a stable dictatorship in Russia, especially when it comes to the question of nuclear weapons, that you have kind of old, stable hands in control of these, yeah, these yeah, units, yeah. right? We also, I think, benefit from a materialistic Russia in the sense that you usually don't want to die if you like yachts and apartments in Mayfair and villas in the French Riviera, you know? And what scares me about Prigozhin and that kind of ultra-nationalistic militarism that he represents mm, is mm. i think that's a shift away from the materialism and the decadence that putinism has brought to russian society mm, mm. and if you see that shift away i mean to that point mm. okay you're a lot more willing to die and take everyone with you if you don't care about that nice villa and on and and the french riviera anymore mm, mm. you know that's food for thought. Yeah, well, nice segue, I think, into the Anne Applebaum piece, because kind of why were the people cheering for Prigozhin? So this sort yeah. of slightly goes into that, and it, it, you know. So um, so this is called Putin Caught in His Own Trap by Anne Applebaum for The Atlantic. I actually had to do a 30-day subscription to be able to read this, so I think it is behind a paywall, and I apologize, but um, it is a good article. So some journalism's worth paying for, and I think Anne Applebaum The Atlantic is. really has good coverage, mm, too, anyway. It does. Uh, the Atlantic's worth, worth the subscription. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're not a sponsor, but maybe we should get them to be a sponsor. But there we are. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so um, with Anne's piece, uh, so uh, yeah, the Wagner mercenaries attempted uh, what she has termed an aborted coup in Rostov on Don in Russia, uh, and the arrival of the Wagner group in the city did not face any resistance and they were not shot at. People in Rostov on Don, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Rostov on Don, um, initially yep. showed little concern about the presence of the mercenaries, with even some engaging with, uh, gauging with them and bringing them food. The response of the public and the military leaders in the city indicated a level of apathy towards existing regime and a lack of opposition to the Wagner forces. Um, she believes that the apathy might be fueled by propaganda and cynicism, and that's been a powerful tool for autocrats like Putin to discourage political engagement and dissent. Um, Russians have not shown a significant support for the war in Ukraine, and there's been a lack of organised opposition or support for it. Um, so there's not been any huge protests um, for or against the war other than state-run, those state events we saw with Putin in the stadium, I think, last year, the football stadium, with a crowd of people who I think were paid to attend to look like they were supporting the war. Um, and, uh, yeah, the lack of response from the security services and military during the coup um, highlights, or sorry, the attempted coup, highlights the regime's vulnerability and uncertainty of who... Uh, who would respond to a serious challenge to Putin's power. The motives behind the attempted coup and the details of the exchange for standing down still remain unknown, uh, and that's still the case, I believe. Um, and the incident exposes the fragility of the regime's ideology and the softness of its support, potentially leading to increased repression and chaos in the future. So, yeah, I think we're going to start potentially seeing show trials. You might even see executions over this. Um, I, I think there probably is going to be some sort of crackdown, uh, but I could be wrong there. But uh, that's my feeling. I think apathy is a very important word there that Ann Applebaum used. I think that's sort of the key word to describe all of this. I mean, I think I think Russians generally, and again, Russian public opinion is very hard to gauge. It's kind of a black box. I mean, it's 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 literally illegal to voice any opinion other than you support the war. Yeah, so yeah. if you live in that society, like you kind of keep your mouth shut unless you support the war, yeah. right? It's like the old Soviet times from what I've read from my favorite Russian spy, Oleg Gordievsky. Yeah, drink. <laughs> drink. <laughs> um, I think Russians generally are don't follow politics closely. Mm, mm. I think they're not very well informed. I think they're kind of stuck in the minutiae of their day-to-day -day life, and they generally don't care about these matters so long as it doesn't disrupt their daily lives. Yeah, yeah. One, well, to that point, I think, I, I've, I've said this before, I think they're very similar culturally to Americans in that mm, regard, mm, and that's mm, a cynical view that I have. Not mm, everyone will agree, mm, mm. but I, I think we have a lot in common with the Russians in that regard. Yeah, I would agree with um, you on that. I'll come to that in a minute, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, out of that apathy, you know, okay, they're cheering Wagner. Is it just because they're like, okay, this is cool. You know, okay, it's exciting. There's tanks parked mm. outside my apartment building. Let me go take pictures. Um. At the same point, yeah, they they saw someone say the quiet part out loud, um, and so far not be punished for it. Mm. You know, I mean, will Prigozhin? There's been indications that the FSB hasn't dropped the criminal case against him yet, but part of the deal was that it it, it would be. We haven't seen that yet. Mm -hmm. um, Shoigu and Gerasimov have not been replaced or dismissed mm, yet. Mm. To my knowledge, I don't think we've seen or heard anything from them since this started. No, Lavrov's come out. I, saw, I was just looking at the BBC. The Lavrov, foreign minister. Yeah, and he's saying that yeah. the Wagner mercenaries will continue in, in um, Africa is what I've seen so far. Um, Under whose... Under Ministry of Defense or so Foreign Ministry look, Authority? Um, because part of this mm, deal was mm. Russian Wagner mercenaries would just sign contracts mm. with the Ministry of Defense and they mm. would just be kind of absorbed. Um mm. I don't yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But but I mean so yeah they saw someone say the quiet part out loud mm. and have yet to really be punished for that. I mean if I were Prigozhin, I would avoid any any high windows <laughs> or, um, or herbal for tea. the time being <laughs> or herbal tea. Um yeah. 
definitely I would double check my my underwear and make sure it's not damp before I put it on or mm, something. Mm. Um, I mean, they applied nerve gas to uh, Navalny's underwear, I think. Nerve agent. Yeah, as Dan. Yeah. Uh, Cause, nerve agent. Yeah. told us about uh, apparently the groin is a really great area for absorption of poisons, apparently. so Right. So <laughs> I would be careful of that if I were him. Um, I don't know if we'll see, you know, crackdowns. Uh, to the extent that we saw, like in Turkey after that failed coup in mm, 2016, mm, mm. um, I don't know. It would certainly make Putin look even weaker than he does anyway. Right now, if he does nothing, um, you know, it's like you, if you come at the king, you best not miss, mm. and they missed. Yeah, yeah, they did. Or, or, or I think the better part is they had the king in the crosshairs and chose not to fire. Mm, indeed, indeed. Sorry, I was just looking at the BBC. I see Lavrov is uh, saying Russia's investigating Western involvement in the Wagner mutiny. So I could already see a narrative being spun here that sort of is that NATO v Putin thing. Another sort of good segue into an mm. aspect of this. So mm. it very quickly after, uh, I think Saturday night, after this thing was kind of resolved, mm. Um, the Wall Street Journal were the first to report this, followed quickly by like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Shane Harris mm. had a had an article on this too, um, that the U.S. intelligence community had some forewarning mm. or some reason to suspect that Prigozhin would openly challenge the Ministry of Defense. Mm. Um, I think beginning in like early June, we had some indications, but we didn't know. We didn't know exactly when or mm. how it would happen. Mm. I definitely think we didn't suspect that it would happen mm. as quickly mm. as it mm. did. Mm. Um, we apparently even grouped, uh, we even briefed uh, the, the the gang of eight, um, you know, so like the top uh, leadership mm. of, of mm. Congress mm. Um, that this was coming. Uh, I, I, I think it's... So like, you know, okay, what does the US intelligence community do with that information? And the answer is, I mean, you really can't do much of anything. I think you put assets in place uh, to be able to listen and gather as much information as possible mm, when mm, it does go down. Mm. Um, apart from that, really, the best thing you can do is just shut the fuck up. You know, I mean, Putin has always been highly afraid of these quote unquote color revolutions. This wasn't quite that. Um, but always looks for a reason to say that, you know, this is a Western plot against me, all, you know, spun up um, and it's all fake. Uh, so it's kind of not surprising to see Lavrov take that tack mm-hmm. now. But, you know, one of the reasons I say is in these situations, one of the best things you can do is just shut up because, A, you don't know exactly what's happening or 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 how it's going to unfold. And you also don't want to give uh, Putin any ammunition at all to say, you know, oh yeah, this is this is like a Western plot against me. And if yeah, if, if Biden came out and was like, ha ha, look at this, you know, to any extent, you give mm. him that ammunition, mm. which is which is again a benefit to have people in charge who know mm. when to shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. I know there's been some talk about obviously the Battle of Bakhmut has sort of been one of the trigger points of this and whether the wisdom of the Ukrainians was to keep that battle going. So I know um Western mm. allies were questioning that judgment a few months ago. Um and uh, you know, and I know actually Professor O'Brien um wrote a really good substack actually about the wisdom of the battle uh, Battle of Bakhmut. If you're gonna go through his substack, you'll find it. Um so you know, you could argue that this this war uh, this battle was sort of the tipping point that may have destabilized Putin. Um yeah. which may or may not help the Ukrainians, you know. So uh, yeah. yeah. And the Ukrainians I think just recently retook Bakhmut. I mm. think as this as this mutiny was ongoing, they they retook it after like, you know, ten months like yeah. Over at least ten thousand Russian troops were killed trying to take this kind of strategically insignificant village. Um, you know, there's been a lot of reporting in the months before this mm. uh, that Ukrainian intelligence was potentially had kind of a weird relationship with mm. Prigozhin and mm. and Wagner. You know that uh, one of the things that came out of the out of the Discord leaks um, was this reporting that uh, Prigozhin possibly was giving targeting information for Russian military units to the Ukrainians, like, hey, go ahead and hit <laughs> these guys. We don't know if that's true yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, but there's the Ukrainians have definitely been working behind the scenes to sort of exacerbate this rift between Prigozhin and mm. Shoigu. 
and why not to their credit you know, why not yeah you know because it's, it's a that's war for ukraine it's a fight for survival and i think some people forget this sometimes it's not just some event happening on the news for the ukrainians this is literally the battle for their very existence and they will try everything at their disposal to win the war um so yeah so i don't blame them for that i just want to go back to your point about apathy and and obviously the connection mm-hmm. you were comparing american voters to to russians i would say also i've seen it in uk politics i think the brexit vote and then obviously the general low vote voter turnout during elections in the uk indicate to me there are large chunks of the uk population who are disengaged from the kind of mainstream political process now I was, I find it funny sometimes, and I was just reflecting on, on I think, what you said in the preamble of our last podcast, and there was a review a while back where we have to position ourselves as pro-democracy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I find that kind of weirdly odd, having to position yourself as pro-democracy, because for me, at least, I don't know, I think democracy is a very important thing, and I would have thought that most people would why well would i would say my mind would wisely think that a democracy is a good and positive thing and and important um and i've just like you wouldn't have to you yeah. you wouldn't have to say that it would just be assumed yeah exactly exactly <laughs> but we live in an age now where we have to say these things it's kind of funny yeah. and and um so a couple of things i mean number one i think these events over the weekend do de- demonstrate the power of democracy because i think i put it on twitter that in a democracy presidents prime ministers chancellors retire they don't die in a bloody coup. Um, right. Whilst in dictatorships, it usually ends in a violent overthrow and then said dictator gets deposed of um, violently and usually ends up uh, at like, you know, um, Colonel Gaddafi or something like that or or worse. So um, so that that's my uh, thing for democracy. So anecdotally, what I've noticed, I mean, there's a lot of people who are disengaged from the UK political process. Um, and I've noticed a lot of my, my dwindling number of friends in the arts who, who identifies on, on the left or even identify themselves as spiritual seem to have this bizarre view on voting. They seem to think that not voting is somehow a noble and ethical thing to do. And I've never understood that. Why is not voting somehow ethical? I don't understand that. Um, and I can say that this this attitude has been quite popular among millennials of my age and older Gen uh, yeah. Gen Xs as well. Um, and you know, I, I I don't know whether people younger than me still hold those views or not, but a lot of people at my age seem to do so. Not everybody, but just quite a few uh, sort of that lefty yeah. arts area. And. Um, also, with the rise of conspiracy content in the 90s, and now much of it linked to Russian propaganda efforts, um, many of those conspiracy theories promote this idea that elites rule everything and mainstream politics is a con and voting is a waste of time. And you can see how this can influence people and create a sort of apathy and disengagement from the political process. And I can say from my own personal experience when I was a conspiracy theorist, one of the many things that pulled me out of it was the fact that I noticed that so many people in my circle just did not engage in mainstream politics at all and they saw it as yeah. worthless and that number of people has definitely grown obviously since covid um and you could argue during i think 2016 is when conspiracy theories sort of became quite mainstream uh, in a destructive way because before that it was sort of just ufo stuff connected to the x-files but now it's sort of neo-nazi ideas wrapped up in some pseudo spiritual stuff or pseudo leftist kind of politics um and so seeing the reaction of the public greeting the wagner mercenaries with an open hand does make me wonder you know whether some of the apathy in the west is a result of russian propaganda efforts um that is my big speculation um i think it is yeah Yeah. i think it definitely is i mean if you just look at who's pushing this content who's making this content who's you know uh who's sort of best figured out that these algorithms benefit or or these these algorithms yeah push mm, outrage mm. outrage gets yeah. more clicks outrage definitely. gets your eyeballs staying in the app um it, it's definitely the russians so yeah they're absolutely it's and it, it's sad to see i mean i'm sort of <laughs> not going into a lot of details i'm sort of in the position right now where you know watching an old friend of mine uh go down the sort of uh extremist conspiracy theory rabbit hole yeah. in real time yeah, you know yeah, and it it, it yeah. absolutely tracks what they say of how it happens yeah. you know it's just sort of 
fun contrarian stuff like oh mm. ufos you know mm. that's kind of cool and interesting is mm. that real mm. and then it goes into you know vaccine skepticism and just uh, now reaching i see indications it's just it's just far right ideology yeah. is yeah. where they where they are and it, it's yeah. kind of sad to see it is happening before your eyes it is and i think a lot of those people don't realize it's far right ideology either no um and that's the because if they did that's they would probably uh, earlier on on their journey kind of take a step back and uh, um, but the further down that kind of uh, rabbit hole or YouTube algorithm you go the worse it kind of gets isn't it I thought that too I mean so w- one of the people I've sort of seen them circling is a guy named Matt Walsh mm. who is sort of one of the biggest in the US one of the biggest voices pushing a lot of like anti-trans legislation yeah. book bans yeah. Basically started the whole kind of thing mm. that, you know, gay mm. people are like groomers and stuff or they're pedophiles. And I mean, I'm, I've been open about this. I'm bisexual. I've seen that. Uh, and to, you know, see a friend of yours fall down this rabbit hole and, yeah. and follow people who believe those things, you yeah. think like, do you actually believe that too? Or do you just not understand what these people represent? Mm. And neither answer is good. No, 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 that's the thing. Is I think a lot of people do casually accept stuff um, and then it kind of just, you know, it sort of follows a logic that keeps building and building and building if they actively follow these things that leads to yeah. very ugly places. I've seen a, so like, you know, I've had a friend who started off as a real sort of peace-loving spiritual person um, and, uh, you know, from early 2002, then the Iraq war happened, they sort of got into 9-11 conspiracy theories, and they got more and more radicalized to the point where they uh, have become an incel. Um, they've uh, been openly supportive of Trump, of Brexit, of sort of right-wing ideas. Um, and if you compare him to who he was 20 years prior, he's very different. But he doesn't see the difference. That's the interesting thing. He still sees himself as spiritual, sees, still sees himself as sort of leftish, doesn't vote yeah. <laughs> out of principle. Um, and, yeah. and it's just like, wow. Um, it's a heck of a journey. And it, it's just, yeah, sad, really. To your point there, it starts with, it starts with apathy. It's, mm. I, I think it, it, it starts with being unengaged to the point of being so uninformed or misinformed that you make yourself an easy target yep. for bad actors. Yeah. Um, and yeah, is that going back to what were what were these people in Rostov mm. cheering? Were they yeah. cheering the fact that, you know, yeah, these generals have gotten a hundred thousand of our, you know, sons, brothers mm. killed mm. or and we don't we are glad that someone's saying that and standing up against it, mm. which would be heartening. Mm. Or are they cheering because they've been so swept up in this, you know, mm. propaganda stew that's mm. very clear in in Russia? And they're like, yeah, we should we should kill more Ukrainians. Is, yeah. is that what they're cheering for? I, and again, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And if it is that, crikey, you know. Yeah, yeah. we got a problem on our hands. <laughs> indeed indeed well look i'm I'm gonna wrap up in a moment matt but is there anything else you'd like to add before we do wrap up today no i think we i think we got it i I think we we dodged a big bullet Mm. this weekend Mm. um again i think the outcome was the best Mm. for for the pro-democracy sort of alliance that we have here Mm. um pregozin and putin both look weak we don't have a bloody civil war Mm. um what happens from here I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah. It could have been. I mean, I think as we said earlier, the, the last thing we really want is a, you know, is a CSL war in Russia that involves open fighting yeah. because especially with all those nukes and all that floating around, it's sort of the doomsday scenario. The Americans are very concerned about that in the 90s. And I know it sort of inspired quite a few Tom Clancy novels and a lot of 90s action thrillers, that scenario. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. My Active Measure series yeah. is is set uh, largely in the aftermath of a pro-Putin, of a, of a, of a Putin-like figure being mm. deposed mm. by quietly a lot less a lot quieter than this would have been uh but quietly deposed by a cabal of of generals and security officials to his right and you know the series follows what happens after that yeah. it's it's pretty scary what yeah. what can happen yeah we were on the money of that where can listeners get that book oh, that's on amazon cool. you just search active measures matt fulton or go yeah. to my website mattfulton.net and you can get links to it right there brilliant and it's in the show notes as well so mm-hmm. um, i'm just going to wrap us up with swan lake um so <laughs> 
<laughs> Following the uh, unfolding events on Twitter on Friday and Saturday, uh, Saturday morning, I noticed a lot of references to Swan Lake. And at first, I wasn't 100% sure what that was a reference to. So pardon my ignorance there. But apparently, it um, relates to during the 1991 August coup. Swan Lake was apparently played on a loop on state television, and it's become synonymous in Russia with political unrest. And it actually dates back to um, 1982. Apparently, Swan Lake became an omen for political unrest um, with the death of uh, uh, Leonard, uh, Leonid Brezhnev in 1982 and uh, state broadcast sorry state TV broadcast the ballet as a new leader was chosen by Soviet officials so uh, yeah so that's why Swan Lake was sort of trending a little bit on Twitter over the weekend um, we don't have the rights to Swan Lake so unfortunately I can't play that as we finish up today but I'm sure you could YouTube it uh, and next time you watch or hear Swan Lake you know you'll have a different perspective on it so so there we are <laughs> so Matt thank you very much for joining me today um, thank you Chris you already mentioned where people could find you at zip mattfulton.com dot net dot net so mattfulton.net is where they can find you dot com is a different guy ah okay dot net not dot com dot net dot net yeah i mean if you want to look me up i'm just chriscar.co.uk um on there is just sort of my film related stuff um and obviously our podcast uh secrets and spies has its own website which is www.secretsandspiespodcast.com uh we're also on twitter just at secrets and spies but more importantly we are on patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies, you can directly support this show and you get a set of coasters or a coffee cup, depending on your level of support, and you'll get access to our show Extra Shot. And what I will do, just as a special thing for Patreon, I'm going to share the the wider notes of this episode, because we amassed an awful lot of links of potential articles that we didn't read out, um, but I think are all worth having a look at. And I think the articles that we talk about today are very much worth a read, and I'll definitely put a link to those in the show notes for this show. So um, I hope everybody found this useful, um, and thank you very much for listening and we will catch you on the next podcast you take care thank you very much thanks for listening this is secrets and spies 